I'm David Heitler Clevens. And I'm Rodney Wittenberg. And this is Music for the New Revolution. The economy is stupid. We've been meaning to get to this topic for a while to tackle some economic issues. And uh, we had a lot of discussions between us about how in this uh, election cycle, there's been a lot of talk about things like socialism. And a lot of times when I hear people talking about that topic, it just makes it clear often how little people actually understand that word. Yes. And how often people confuse uh, economics or an economic uh, form of uh, uh, the, the country uses versus the political aspect of the country. For example, in America, we are a democratic republic, which is our form of government, but we are a, I would say we are a uh, hybrid of capitalism and socialism. Which really pretty much every you know, Western democracy is to a varying extents. And that, that's the thing I think people tend to make it as if it's either capitalism or sh- socialism, when really almost every place is a hybrid. Almost every place has some elements of free market and other elements where the government is controlling or planning aspects of the economy. And I think, you know, if we think about it that way as more of a spectrum and more like, let's make conscious choices about where it makes sense to have the government involved and where it makes sense to not, I think that takes a lot of this sort of hocus pocus out of it for people, this this sort of boogeyman of socialism. Um, You know, there's obviously reasons why people on the right want to make that a scary thing because they don't want, uh, you know, the government involved in the economy at all, at least certain, you know, on the libertarian end of things, you know, except for they do believe in socialism for corporations and for the rich that the government should help out actually the people who people like us think are the need the least help <laughs> well i think it all goes back to the definitions of those and how and what they not the definitions but materially what they are and i think that's what people where people get confused so i actually wanted to read the definitions of each um so um and i think that'll help with the discussion we're having mm-hmm. uh, so socialism is a political and economic theory of social organization which advocates that the means of production, distribution, and exchange should be owned and regulated by the community as a whole. So I'm sure all of you have been to a co-op. That's socialism. 
it exists in in America. In fact, I think that David and I both belong to or go to pretty regularly a co-op in the area mm-hmm. where we live. That's right. And what it means is there is that the and, and 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 that we all work. If we if you shop there, you're either work or you pay for the privilege of not working. <laughs> But to, but to be able to shop there so that the responsibility of all the work is shared. That's mm-hmm. socialism. I mean, I would right. bet that a lot of families operate that way. And remember, we're talking about economics. We're not talking about political decisions, although this does influence political decisions, but it's not how those, the, the, I think what people miss is the how th- is decided is what is the politics. Mm-hmm. The fact that we are agreeing that this is all shared among us. The responsibility is shared is, is a different thing than how we decide to do that. Uh, and before I get into all of that, the capitalism is an economic or political system in which the country trade and industry are controlled by private owners for profit rather than the state. Now you can see that by looking at the definition, those two things could exist at the same time. And they really do. Yeah. Yes, they really do. I think where it gets confusing is I know as a lefty, I am way more um, suspicious of capitalism than I am of government, which is a weird thing to say. But the government, the difference between the two, I think for me anyway, is I can always protest or organize against the government for something I legally in the constitution have the right of redress of an issue. Do not have that with a company. I can choose not to buy their product, but that doesn't mean that other people won't buy their product. And if their product is poisoning people, there's nothing we can do about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and I think all, the part of where this becomes problematic is I think there are plenty of people including myself who, who, you know, don't always trust the government. It depends on the government. (laughs) So when a government is, you know, clearly only there in the interests of big money, like our current one, Mm -hmm. uh, and people would argue and reasonably that actually really every national government we've had in recent memory has been as well, but to varying degrees, you know, and, and I think that, um, so then it's understandable when people don't, trust the government. But ironically, right now we have a government that has built a basis for not trusting the idea of socialism by being the most corrupt and the most inefficient version of federal government that we could possibly have so far. I will only say so far. Uh, <laughs> and and so it's, it's ironic, right? I mean, yes. it, it's like their own uh, inefficiency, their own ineptitude, their own corruption is sort of their best argument for why we should have less government in our lives. But the answer to that, I don't think is what the answer that they're proposing. I think the answer is to replace them with an effective, compassionate, actual government that works for the people. <laughs> and that's also a tricky thing to, to, to find because, okay, so these are some of the things that drive me crazy when I hear people saying, well, we don't want to be, um, we don't want to be, uh, uh, Nazi Germany. Okay, so Nazi Germany was a socialist economy with a dictatorship. Very, very different than a socialist economy with the democ- uh, democratically elected officials. Now, you could say, some people say, well, what about Venezuela? Well, 
couple things. Um, corruption is a problem, no matter what form of economy you have, as David just pointed out. And um, I on a, this gets into a, a little conspiracy, but I think we in the, the the our government in general does not support democratic socialist countries in this hemisphere. Well, I don't. I don't think that's a, a uh, um, at all a, a conspiracy theory because there's plenty to back that up. That really we've gone after more vehemently, you know, democratically elected socialist governments than we have ones that are dictatorships. In fact, I think you could argue that the dictatorships have been in response to our installing dictators and overthrowing. Uh, you know, democratically, like, you know, so I look at like the 50s when there was the Arbenz government in Guatemala that was a democratically elected socialist government, and we helped to overthrow that and install a vicious fascist dictatorship there. A few years later, Cuba had a revolution, and I think they learned from the example of Guatemala that if they wanted to actually have socialism, they couldn't be an open society because we would come in and muck it up. Uh, and then the same thing in the 70s, the early 70s, Chile's democratically elected uh, socialist Allende government was overthrown in another brutal CIA-sponsored coup that resulted in tons and tons of people being murdered, including the, the you know, one of our heroes, Victor Jara. Uh, and then a few years later, the Sandinista government in Nicaragua, I think, responded to that by realizing, again, if they wanted to have a socialist government, they couldn't have an open democracy because we would come in and overthrow it. So, which we still attempted to do, <laughs> you know, well, but, but I think we've taught the lesson to the, to our hemisphere that we don't allow democratically elected socialists. And, and to that point, I would say we even do it here. Uh, if you look at the early union movement, boy, there was always a backlash against it. And again, what is the union doing? It is saying that the means of production, the worker should at least be on equal footing politically with the people who own or have capital. And that is the basic struggle of the 20th century in America. It's a verse, it's labor or the people versus those who have capital, at least in my mind. And from that stems all the other issues that we have, including, but not limited to, racism. Because mm -hmm. so much of what people call racism is really classism, and racism is used to divide the labor so that they're never truly organized. Because remember, the only thing in this country, at least in our current system, the way it is, at least for now, is numbers, groups, large bodies of people can um, outweigh capital if they are organized and are working together for a common goal. Mm -hmm. Which is partly why the powers that be are trying so hard to keep people from voting now uh, because voter suppression is a way of trying to limit that power. Um, and, of, and of course, Citizens United, one of the worst Supreme Court decisions in recent years, also gives more weight to money uh, in relation to individuals and votes. So yeah. we've, we have a real attempt at shifting this towards even more firmly towards oligarchy, towards, you know, a, a, a authoritarian capitalist combination, which is very scary. Or, or, or maybe even more socialist as, as it feels like right now. We're, we're recording this right in the midst of the um, 
the pandemic and um, it is amazing to me to watch how many people are talking about things that Bernie Sanders and other people who are would consider themselves democratic socialists have been talking about pretty much their whole careers, we are now actually doing. And I think that could be a silver lining from this horrible situation that, you know, we could end up with more of a consensus that, hey, actually doing things in a communal way, doing things where we have some organization centrally that takes care of people is something we actually want. Mm -hmm. Right. You know, like it's funny right now, one of the things economically, I think, from this situation is that I, I see a lot of, of people saying, it turns out that people like stockbrokers are not as essential as people who work, you know, for at, at, at pharmacies and grocery stores for our survival. And that kind of realization really could filter to more people and the people who've been fighting against like a $15 minimum wage right. for these people who are saving our lives now and risking their own, uh, you know, maybe that there will be a little bit more of a, of a groundswell of support for recognizing how the relative importance has been just out of whack. Yeah. Well, it also shows you where uh, people's priorities are. I mean, you can see in the federal government's response um, that they are more concerned about, how this affects um, th those bankers in Wall Street than in some ways and how it affects the worker who is actually the essential. Like, exactly. I, I think you're, you're on to something there, David, because like, you know, I, I often wonder if this goes on, who's going to pick the lettuce? Mm -hmm. Who's going to, like, we need to eat. And so far we go to the supermarket and for the most part, the things that are missing are staples, but if this continues, we're going to not have carrots and peas and apples and all those things that, um, that are, need to be picked or cultivated on a daily basis. They're not like, okay, well, we picked all the apples. Let's just sit them over here for a while. Right. <laughs> right. That stuff has to come in fresh. And that means someone has, has to be responsible for picking it. And now those are not jobs that pay tons of money. Um, and and it, I think one of the problems is, and, and maybe this is where I was going earlier, is that we are so removed in this country from the means of production. And often when I hear people talk about rugged individualism, it leaves out how much we are dependent on each other to do things. You know, I, mm -hmm. I, you know, I'm, I, I think both of us are incredible self-starters. I mean, you know, like we've talked about the fact that both of us have been pretty much self-employed for our entire lives. And you've sent two kids to college and you know what you and Jenny do following your passion is pretty amazing. I, I'm, I'm often in awe and impressed. And you know, I've been self-employed since I was 22. Mm -hmm. So we are not anti-capitalism. We actually are, you know, self-starters and took our passions and turned them into a way to make a living and doing all the things we do. I recognize that I can't do them without other things that other people have created. If Infrastructure that other yeah. people create. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. If it's nothing more than right now, we're doing this on the internet and I'm using a microphone. I didn't build this microphone. Right. <laughs> I didn't make this mic stand or the mixer or the light bulbs that are in my ceiling. I went to a store and bought them because someone else made them. 
And without the light bulbs, my, whatever brilliance or genius or idea I have matters not because I can't be effective if I'm not actively taking part in this collective idea we call our culture. Right. Well, and I think, you know, a, a while ago, Elizabeth Warren had a great quote about that where she would talk about how, you know, it's great that there's people who are successful in business, but they didn't get there all on their own. That's the myth that we have, the rugged individualism you were just mentioning. It, you know, somebody built the road, somebody yeah. built all the bridges, somebody, you know, all the things that they rely for their goods to get to market so that they can make all that money is the labor of other people. And right. we need to recognize that. And the other thing, you know, I think when you were talking about sort of the relative merit of different jobs and things like that, you know, I think there's this illusion that the free market will show us our values. Mm -hmm. What people are willing to pay more for represents what we think is the most important. I think that's a total bunch of bunk because I, you know, I think if you talk to people and they say what's mat what matters to them, a lot of times they'll say things like education. Well, we treat teachers horribly. We, 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 you know, don't pay teachers anything like they deserve. You know, we, people will talk about valuing people like firefighters and police officers and stuff like that. But the people we're paying the most money to are not only people often who are not contributing things we think are valuable, they're actually destroying the things that are valuable, polluting right. and, and, you know, treating people like crap in their jobs and, you know, all these kinds of things. So I think, the, the idea that somehow the market is just going to magically reflect our values is, you know, a, a real fallacy. And part of the, the benefit of a more socialist approach is that we can have the opportunity to actually consciously decide what we think is important and what should be, you know, how things should be remunerated, or at least try to balance that a little bit more through some centralized control. That, that's what I believe. And I think, I think actually a lot of people would actually buy that if they weren't so scared of the label, the red baiting label of socialism. Um, yeah, I I wonder though, David. I, I, you you are a little more in this case. I think maybe a little more optimistic than I am. I wonder if the the values that are um, amplified with our pocketbooks are our values. I mean, well, that's the argument sometimes that people make. You know, yeah. what do we value? Like, what do we collectively value? Do we value making money at any means, by any means, no matter who it hurts or who it poisons? Or do we value um, community and each other? Well, I would say, and maybe you'll say I'm too optimistic, but I, I, I guess I do feel like when people really are reflective and think about what really matters to them, and this could be another one of these things from this pandemic that comes out, is that people have the time and are sort of forced to maybe be a little bit more inward looking. Mm -hmm. And I think when people do that soul searching, they, they often do realize that the things that really matter to them are things like community mm -hmm. and, and things that there isn't a price tag on. Yeah. Uh, and, and so it can maybe lead towards us reconsidering the way that our economy is structured somewhat. And, and again, like you've said before, it's not a choice of, doing away with 
all aspects of capitalism, of free market economy. But I think it's just trying to think, bring, bring the force into balance, yeah. uh, you know, like so that we have, have a, a more of a reasonable thing. I think we, we have government now, as, as, as Bernie and Warren have been pointing out and other people too, you know, that doesn't work for the regular people. It works only for the super rich and the big corporations. Mm-hmm. And, and actually, I think that would be a great segue into our first song. Is that okay? Yeah. Oh, uh, sure. <laughs> so we, we here. Yeah, we've got a couple songs ready, and one is a great song by James McMurtry called We Can't Make It Here, and he does this great thing of taking that phrase in various meanings. And then uh, Patty Mills, who has played for our showcases at NERFA a couple times, and his song Race to the Bottom. Flapping in the breeze, one leg missing and both hands free. No one's paying much mind to him. The VA budget's just stretched so thin, and there's more coming back from the Mideast War. We can't make it here anymore. And that big old building was a textile mill, it fed our kids and it paid our bills. They turned us out and they closed the doors We can't make it here anymore You see those pallets piled up on the loading dock They're just gonna sit there till they rock Cause there's nothing to ship, nothing to pack Just busted concrete and rusted tracks Empty storefronts around the square There's a needle in the gutter and glass everywhere You don't come down here Can forget all that. If she 
comes up pregnant, what'll she do? Forget the career, forget about school. Can she live on faith, live on hope? High on Jesus or hooked on dope? When it's way too late to just say no, you can't make it here anymore. Strip malls, 
The level ranches for sale signs on unmowed lawns, but the lights are still on in the local bank branches. We're still here, the jobs are all gone. There's only 24 seven dollar hours in a day. You can't get ahead, man, there ain't no way. Won't make things better by making them worse. We're in a race to the bottom and we're coming in first. Coming in first. Big boss man won't pay no taxes. Don't want to pay no overtime. He's parking his profits in Cayman Islands. And half sweet on the taxpayer's dime It's the will of God and of the founding fathers You stick to the script like we're deaf, dumb, and blind They're dumping tea into Boston Harbor Protesting to protect their bottom line There's only 24 seven-dollar hours in a day you can't get ahead, man, there ain't no way Won't make things better by making them worse We're in a race to the bottom And we're coming in first Coming in first Rich get richer and the poor work harder Wages go down while the profits explode Long time gone and it's getting farther In the rearview mirror down a wrong way to go There's only 24 seven-dollar hours in a day Can't get ahead, man, there ain't no way won't make things better by making them worse We're in a race to the bottom And we're coming in first Coming in first We're coming in first Coming in So a couple good songs, in my opinion. Yep. Uh, actually, I, I, that that James McMurtry song, I think, is a masterpiece. <laughs> I, I, they, they both of those songs sum up what we just talked about in the first part of the show. They really, really brought it home. And yeah. the thing about a song, it can take what we said in 20 minutes and say it in three or four. <laughs> yeah, I agree. And and with just both songs very artfully done and... Um, and I'm sure that there's ways in which, you know, we could talk till we're blue in the face. And th like you said, in just a few minutes, a song can reach people so much more significantly, I think. Um, and, uh, you know, there's some stuff in both those songs that really stand out. But I was thinking of the James McMurtry Mur one, We Can't Make It Here. Mm -hmm. There's that bit where he deals with the racism you know, like that sometimes is used in these class things. And you brought it up earlier too, you know, to divide us mm -hmm. instead of looking up at the people who, you know, have their 
foot on all of our necks, you know, we, we start fighting with each other. So he's got that great bit about, you know, do I hate the people, you know, in other countries who, you know, have the jobs that have been sent overseas? No, I hate the people who sent them there. You know, it's, 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 he's, he's kind of redirecting that mistake that people fall into. Yeah. And uh, yeah. Yeah. And I, so I think with the setting up our next couple of songs, we could talk a little bit about that class consciousness when you were saying what you were just thinking. I was thinking about um, something I mentioned earlier, like uh, myself as a entrepreneur and what that actually looks like and means and how, you know, we are a aspirational country, always have been, you know, since the beginning. I mean, the idea that we could, even the idea that this little ragtag group of uh, colonies could take on the most powerful force in the world at the time, which was the British Army, mm-hmm. sort of thrown together a group of people who didn't really agree on everything. Right. <laughs> um, we're aspirational. I think what the argument has been for bringing a little more socialism into our capitalistic way of being is to take a look at everyone's. If we measure how everyone's doing as opposed to measuring just the people at the top, it's a very different uh, grade we come up with. Yeah, I agree. I think one of the things that's very puzzling in our country is that um, so often it feels like people who are actually being victimized by the way the system works side with the people who are doing the victimizing instead. And there's that great quote from John Steinbeck, you know, who wrote Grapes of Wrath and other wonderful lefty uh, novels, uh, you know, where he says, you know, the reason socialism has never caught on in this country is that the poor all think they're just temporarily disadvantaged millionaires. And there's this concept, I think, that goes along with that anybody can make it in this country that make is, is very, a, a very helpful narrative for keeping you know, big money in power, because regular people will be like, well, you know, I don't want to have more taxes on the super wealthy, because I might be one someday, you know, instead of saying, like, you know, some of the old union songs, you know, dump the bosses off my back or things like that. (laughs) You know, there's, there isn't always that kind of attitude of looking at the CEOs as the problem. Mm -hmm. uh, And people often are too easily diverted into hating immigrants or people of color or, you know, or whatever. Um, so I think all those things are, are very puzzling and troubling because, you know, we, we really could have a more cohesive movement of people power in this country. Um, and I think in some ways it's gotten even worse recently with the whole Trump era because, you know, I think it used to be there were plenty of rural people who were, you know, workers who were, who were, union members and who recognized that things were more complicated. And a lot of people in those areas have just gone totally over to an absolute right-wing, you know, ideology. I think in, in, um, I often find myself in defense of them in some ways, not that I am, but I think about like, I've often thought about like, you know, being a member of, uh, uh, a group that has been oppressed over time, who else is oppressed? And when I say that, uh, I think that um, culturally, rural America has been left out. Um, and also with globalization, and I don't mean this 
to pick on globalization because I actually think globalization has been a really good thing. I, I heard a statistic the other day that it's lifted, you know, globalization has lifted millions of people out of pop poverty around the world. In some mm. ways, it's a balancing. But what's left out is the devastation that it's done to to um, to the to, to what to the way of life that had been established throughout the industrial revolution and up until I guess the beginning of the technical revolution, um, and that those factory jobs from the third from the end of the war really created a solid working and middle class and. As auto, and this is the thing that really always gets left out of the conversation. As automation takes over, those jobs just aren't necessary anymore. And no matter how much you wish them to come back, they aren't necessary. And at the same time, there are very greedy companies that decided, oh, we'll go overseas where there's burgeoning um, uh, uh, middle class and working class and middle class, and we can, we can get them to do things much cheaper. And uh, our, um, and I know I'm jumping around a lot, but that also goes to the wealth of this country. I mean, 400 years of free labor created a lot of wealth, a lot of capital that allowed for the um, creation of a lot of stuff that we all use and a lot of wealth that we also don't get to be part of. So all of that, I guess, is just to say that um, we do, I think we do have to come to some kind of reckoning on. Um, who we are in relation to um, those who have and those who don't. It, 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 it just seems to come down to this, this issue of class and how separated we are. Yeah. So let's do some more music about that. First, we're going to have a very old song done by this wonderful young group called Windborn, who, does, who did a whole album of really old uh, uh, protest music, which is super cool. And uh, sometime we'll have them on to interview them. But they do this song of the lower classes, uh, which is a really cool one. And then Anne Feeney from Pittsburgh uh, who wrote this song with the Kensington uh, uh, Welfare Rights Group, uh, The Rich Man's House. We plow and sow, we are so low that we delve in the dirty clay. Till we bless the plain with golden grain And the veil with the fragrant hay Our place we know we are so low Down at the landlord's feet We're not too low the bread to grow But too low the bread to eat we're low, we're low, we are so low, yet from our fingers glide. The silken flow and the robes that glow run the limbs of the sons of pride. And what we get and what we give, we know and we know our share. We're not too low the cloth to weave, but too low the cloth to wear. Down, down we go, we are so low to the hell of the deep sunk mine. But we gather the proudest gems that glow and the crown of the despot shines. Whenever he lacks, 
Upon our backs fresh loads he deigns to lay. We're far too low to vote the tax, but not too low to pay. We're low, we're low, as to war we go to fight some foreign country. That was yesterday our greatest friend, but today's our enemy. God bless our boys, the papers scream, praise them, the churchmen cry. When the war is won and home we come, who cares if we live or die? We're low, so low, into boats we go to flee war in our home country. And we'll try to make a better life when we land across the sea. But send them back, the press cries out, back to where they came. We're far too low to feed and clothe, but not too low to blame. We are so low, but soon we know that the low folk will arise. The tyrants in their towers of gold shall hear the people's cries. No more shall they hold us in thrall, their lies we will not heed. But every heart shall hear the call, and the people will be free. Well, I went down to the rich man's house, and I took back what he stole from me. Took it back, took back my dignity. Took back my humanity Oh, I went down to the rich man's house And I took back what he stole from me Took it back, took back my dignity Took it back, took back my humanity Now he's under my feet, under my feet Under my feet, under my feet Ain't gonna let the system walk all over me well, I went down to the landlord's house and I took back what he stole from me. Took it back, took back my dignity. Took it back, took back my humanity. Oh, I went down to the landlord's house and I took back what he stole from me. Took it back, took back my dignity. Took it back, took back my humanity. Under my feet, under my feet, under my feet, under my feet, they're gonna let the system walk all over me. Well, I went down to the welfare office, I took back what they stole from me, took it back. 
Yeah. <laughs> and I think I detected uh, Reggie Harris singing on that one. I have to look at the credits, but I don't actually, I don't need to look at the credits. I couldn't miss that voice anywhere. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. So again, in those three songs, some that what we were talking about earlier. <laughs> yeah. It also really brought home how long this battle has been going on. Between oh, yeah. Those Timeless. Those who have and uh, the have-nots. It's just mm-hmm. on and on and on. But one of the things that was making me think of, this, this may seem kind of odd, but then maybe not since you know me. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking how uh, how it would be really important, I think, in some ways, if it was possible for uh, each of us to do the other's job for just a little while. You know, oh, yeah. We have the, that show now called, um, what is it, uh, Undercover Bosses, but we should do something called Undercover CEOs too, <laughs> hmm. where the guy, the working guy gets to go and run the whole company, you know, or girl, or whomever. Yeah. I think that one of the things is just a lack of respect of, or understanding of what it takes to do the jobs that we hire people to do. And, and at the same time, running the band is also not always a joy and you have to make difficult decisions that do impact the members of your band. I'm saying this from the standpoint of liking running a band to running a company or being a CEO or, or a boss, you know, um, like, uh, and, and there's ethical ways of doing it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think it's good to recognize that, um, you know, I'm, I'm sure it's hard to be a CEO. I'm sure it's hard to be a boss. I think the thing about the class consciousness that we've been talking about is that, is it that many times harder (laughs) that it should be paid astronomically more than the person at the bottom of a company. And I think we would both agree, no way. There's no, there's no amount of hard work that could be worth a million times more than somebody else. You know, that, that just is not, not possible in my opinion, you know? Well, let's look at that just for a second uh, as, as a point of conversation. Um, is, is the risk worth anything? Yes, it's worth something, but again, <laughs> not, many- not that, I mean, I don't know how you can, you know, exactly figure this sort of thing out. But I think at a gut level, I think most people would agree, you know, that there's just no, when somebody's a billionaire, you know, when, when they, they have, you know, more money than they could use, you know, for toilet paper for a whole state for, you know, I don't know how many years, you know, and, and other people don't have enough to eat. That imbalance is just, you know, outrageous. Um, so it's not, I think, you know, a lot of people would agree that it's not like we should all be paid exactly the same amount, you Mm -hmm. know, but I think a much, much more equitable system would really benefit everybody because, you know, the, the fact is, rich people have to live in this world too, at least somewhat. So, you know, I think if they really thought about it, they would realize they'd prefer to live in a world where other people were not miserable, um, you know, unless they're totally evil to the core. And I don't think all rich people are. So, you know, I I think people just don't really think it through and they also don't do anything to change the inherent systems that create the inequalities. They just go along with the way it's been, you know. I thought that was really depicted well in the movie Parasite for anybody who hasn't seen it. It's worth, I think it's worth checking out. Mm, yeah, I haven't seen it yet. I'm looking forward to seeing oh, it. Oh, yeah, yeah, it really does deal with exactly what we're talking about, too, in, in, a, in a cinematic way or in a really amazing storytelling way about um, about that class difference. And, and I think it's also how um, removed we can be, how mm-hmm. easy it is if you have means, how, how easy it is to remove yourself from. Um, what other people go through and i think 
that is where I was getting at with the idea of being able to, to step into someone else's shoes. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, it's tricky because, you know, like usually the, someone who is a CEO may, may be third generation wealth. So they are, they're coming into the job with capital mm-hmm. and then um, they're reaping the benefits of the capital that that company generates. And if they steer it well, they'll generate even more capital. Right. <laughs> and, right. Um, but uh, at the same time, if the workers don't do their job, there's no one for you to steer. And um, it it does, you know, again, I, I, I have been in a place, you know, I, at one point I had 13 or 14 people working for me uh, at Melody Vision. And it was always, there was the weight of knowing that I had to meet payroll every every week or every two weeks is when we paid people. And that was a huge, huge um, stress thinking about I was responsible for making sure that all these people who were doing really good work for me were able to put food on the table and what I had to do to be able to make that happen was constantly be bringing in work that was at a certain level of uh, you know certain level uh, that I had enough money to pay everybody and pay myself and um what is that how many times more is that risk worth than the actual people working and that you're right it's a difficult equation but i think it is it speaks to the thing we were talking about earlier what do we value Mm -hmm. like uh i do know some amazing ceos of companies who um really take care of their employees and value them and make sure that they have um not only a living a fair wage but a living wage and that they are, uh, and some of the other things are taken care of. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I personally believe that healthcare is not something that should be for for profit. Right. I I I, I know a lot of people out there disagree with and think that that would de incentivize the need the, the the healthcare industry. But I disagree. I think it might incentivize it in a different way. Um, and I think actually there's proof of that because you know every other Western democracy does make it a right and we're the only ones who don't and as much as there are problems with all those systems i think you know our current health crisis is highlighting the fact that uh there's a really serious problem with the way we do things yeah well i think there's a i think the current health crisis also really shows that we are that it is not possible to use the line the man-made lines of countries as actual borders that you know, the fact that we did not have someone in, the, in our government who was in charge of pandemics uh, that was created during the Obama administration that Trump eliminated, because we didn't have that, we weren't on the ground in China when the thing broke out, where we would have been before. And right or wrong, we have been around the world as sort of the leader in clamping down or helping to keep the virus from spreading does it cost us money yes why do we do it because it's also in our own interest that everyone else is healthy which is becoming very very clear through this right <laughs> right and um and, and maybe that's that will be the uh the, the the thing that comes out of this that people see that oh you mean no matter how much money i have or how big a gate i have or how much much security i have i'm only secure as the least secure person that's in the country or in the world 
really. I mean, you know, I mean, at some point when the have-nots have, there's a, the point where the have-nots have so little, they will come and take what the haves have, and there's no amount of security that will stop that, and it's been proven time and time again that, you know, the, the Bolsheviks in the, in the, in the Russian Revolution and, and France, and you can go on throughout history. When people get to a point where they have so little, they have nothing else to lose, they will come and take what the, the haves have. Yeah, yeah. So I wanted to bring us back to a topic that you raised earlier because it'll lead us to our next song. And that is, um, you know, you were talking a little bit about how um, racism has been used to obscure a sense of class. And, I, you know, I was thinking about how um, we were watching the Reconstruction series recently and um, that that point that there was a there was a a movement for a little while where poor whites and poor blacks were combining forces and seeing common cause. Mm -hmm. And that that was actually one of the moments when uh, whiteness was kind of, you know, created as a concept. And in in order to say, you know, no, you you know, you white people who are poor, you you don't want to, you know, be with these black people who are poor, you know, it it was a very deliberate attempt to divide the working class so that they wouldn't rise up and be too powerful together. And I think that's a very strong element of this, these, all these issues. And it's come up a few times, but maybe you want to say a little bit more about that and lead us into uh, the next next song. I think it still goes back to the same thing about how when, you know, Irish and Italian and Eastern European immigrants came to America, they were not considered white. And they were, and they were uh, lived among and were among poor blacks. And while um, there are stories of that turning out to be a, a symbiotic relationship, there's also stories where it turns out that three people were trying to get away from it as much as possible. Meaning, uh, the the immigrants were trying to be more quote unquote white, which meant being more financially secure and more financially successful and having capital. And why do I keep going back to this thing about having capital? It's because it is how things happen. You know, I mean, like I consider myself very, very lucky in that I was able to start my company, but it has, it's directly related to growing up middle-class. You know, I don't think I could have started Melody Vision if I had, not had access to some early capital where I could have, if nothing else, it brought me the time from the time I graduated from high school till, um, you know, my mid to late twenties when I could start making some money to explore and play and try stuff and be in bands that made no money and do all those kind of things that you have to do to try and figure out what it means to be a creative. Um, that was my version of someone else might take that money and invest in going to college or take that money and invest in starting a business, which is basically what you do as an artist. And um, you can't do that if you're, um, you know, if you don't have the means, it's just almost impossible. And there are stories of people working six and seven jobs and doing all these different things. Yes, you can do that and you can make it. It is possible to scrape and scrap and, get to that point that is the story of my dad that's what my dad did he got to a point where 
then I could go and take it to the, the next level. And that is what the great parts about America is. The, but the tough part, the hard part is that, um, that that is always, I guess it goes back to corruption, I guess, because like, I don't know if it's really in people's, I, I would hope that it's not in people's hearts that they say, I'm consciously going to keep you away from it. So I get some, but maybe that's all there is. But, um, you know, I, as I say many times, Martin Luther King was assassinated when he was bringing together uh, sanitation workers of different races to fight for a living wage. And uh, that seems to be the continuing struggle since his uh, assassination, his, his passing, is that is the, the big civil right fight. And I don't even know if people are couching it that way. I think Bernie is talking about it, but he doesn't count. I don't think he couches it that way. And none of the other, um, you know, political leaders are really couching that this is uh, economic uh, insecurity, economic justice is is the last civil right uh, that that we need to figure out in this country, and that leads me to the the song. So uh, Taj Mahal's version of Bushwhite Town, which is a Lead Belly tune, I, I picked it because I love the story of how Lead Belly came to write the song, and and uh, we could do a whole show about Lead Belly. He's such an interesting uh, person. Um, and there's so many fascinating stories about him, but he, I think he was in Washington DC as the story goes. I might be incorrect about this, but I think he's in Washington DC and um, he is confused by the airs that some of the people put on there. And he goes, uh, yeah, I don't like, uh, I don't like the way these people are, are, are behaving. He goes, well, they're bourgeois. And he goes, what's that mean? And that led him to create this song, the, uh, the bourgeois blues. And this is Taj Mahal's version, which is one of my favorite. Uh, there's so many versions out there of this tune, so check them all out. But this is one of my favorite from Taj Mahal, Bourgeois Blues. This is a song and a story about the bourgeois blues, about bourgeois people in a bourgeois town. Listen here, people. Listen to me, don't try to find no home down in Washington, D.C. Cause it's a bourgeois town. It's a bourgeois town. I got the bourgeois blues going on, the news around. Me and my wife, Martha, run all over that town. Everywhere we go, the people, they were Chinese down, Lord, in bourgeois town.
in the house <laughs> i really wanted to throw that song in there for a whole number of reasons but uh it does speak to the things and the depth that people will go for money it was it was a toss-up between that one and and head like a hole from nine inch nails completely different but. well we can include that one in another part because i know we're going to do more parts of this topic um so that was the ojs with for the love of money and and just to geek out musically, Anthony Jackson's bass playing on that is just ridiculous. And a friend of mine, I'll go a little into the, into the weeds, is, was the engineer on that. And he told me about the story. Anthony Jackson just got a phase shifter. Like, uh-huh. And the story goes, he was at Manny's. He saw a demonstration of it. And, they, and the people who invented it kept saying, oh, it doesn't work on the bass. It's for guitar. But he bought it anyway. And he bought it to the session. And uh, when he was learning this, you know, Gamble and Huffer teaching him the song, he comes up with that bass line and he comes up with with the phase shifter on it. And it's just so cool. That is super cool. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. So that was really kind of like our throwback uh, yeah. section there. I mean, especially the OJ's song since it's from the 70s. Yeah. And uh, we've had a couple songs that come from a long time ago, but the recording is more within our decades of, yeah. of, of this of this show. The anthology I have is from the Folkways, A Vision Shared, which is a tribute to Woody Guthrie and Led yes. It's a great yeah. uh, bunch of songs. And yeah. I'm sure we'll get to some other ones. And, other episodes that's really cool so we kind of should 
start to wrap things up. And we, we, uh, a few months ago, we had the opportunity to interview um, Charlie King and Martin Swinger in our studio uh, or your studio, really, Rodney. Uh, <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm appropriating it. <laughs> Anyway, that's, uh, that's what happens in socialism. It's our studio. Yeah, that's right. And um, anyway, we, we had an interesting interview with them, partly because we had no electricity that day. <laughs> and Rodney was very resourceful and found a way with a couple batteries to uh, to do this. And um, those of you who know Charlie King's work know that he has written some of the greatest songs about economic issues and labor issues over over a number of decades and a fairly recent one that he did when we had him in was uh, his song Trickle Up. And uh, so you'll hear a little bit of his uh, talking about this and then mainly the song performed with Martin Swinger. Um, and that's, you know, I was thinking of ending with a couple songs that maybe give a little bit more of sort of solutions, ways forward, vision for the future, because we've outlined a lot of the problems with economic issues through a lot of this episode. And of course, it's really important to not just complain about the way things are, but to see, uh, have an idea of how things need to be. And then then we can work towards that vision if we, if we, if we see it. Uh, so I, I think these last couple ones are first a very nuts and bolts kind of proposal uh, in a way of, of, of trickle up instead of trickle down. And then uh, a song from Richard Thompson called Time to Ring Some Changes, which is from another really good anthology of songs about uh, class issues called Hard Cash. Mm. Uh, and, you know, it's interesting. We were talking a little bit about the sometimes lack of class consciousness in this country. You may have noticed that a number of the songs we've done, you know, from Leon Rosselson and, and now Richard Thompson are from Brits. Mm -hmm. And everybody knows, you know, the British have a very finely tuned sense of class consciousness. <laughs> and I'm not saying that the Brits get it right just because they have this consciousness, but they certainly seem to think about it more than, yes. than people in this, in this culture sometimes do. Yeah. So here we go with a little bit of that interview from Charlie and Martin. This is a, um, a retelling of um, my father's economic philosophy. I grew up in a real uh, right-wing family, and my father had an airtight explanation of why socialism would never work, and this is his position and my response. They say if you took all the money on earth and dispensed equal portions to each child at birth, that after a while it would all find its way back to the same handful that holds it today. Well, I'm willing to give that a try. Everyone gets a piece of the pie. When we give the money to the many at the bottom, wait for it to trickle up to the top. Give the money to the many at the bottom. Top dog waiting for his trickle up. Rosalie dwells in a dump, cleans hotels for Donald Trump. Swap their salaries, she sits pretty. Penthouse suite, Atlantic City. The money trickles back to Don. He can hire her husband, Juan. Pay them both a living wage. Trickle up, it's all the rage when we give. Give the money to the many at the bottom and wait. Wait for it to trickle up to the top. Give the money to the many at the bottom. Top dog waiting for his trickle up. Henry Ford's first hurrah was pay 
him enough to buy my car. The unions held the line on pay, but now the car has had its day. A better idea, a high-speed train, six weeks off and a raise in pay. And next thing you know it, we're all aboard. See the USA in a train by Ford. If you give, give the money to the many at the bottom and you wait for it to trickle up to the top. Money to the many at the bottom. Top dog waiting for his trickle up. When the Inuit lives in Nome, lost his job, could lose his home. His bank bailed for Boku billions. Kick Quinn back a measly million. Pays his mortgage, credit card. Hires Don Trump to rake his yard. Oh, Trump invests in a landscape biz. No, someday this'll all be his because he gives the money to the many at the bottom. And wait, wait for it to trickle up to the top. You got to give, give the money to the many at the bottom. Top dog waiting for his trickle up. Top dog waiting for his trickle up. Please wait. <laughs> that's great you know one yeah i mean one thing that 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 i have admired about your songs charlie for a very long time is you know how you just you know capture the the essence of a, a political argument in a song you know like that like where you get to it you know like the best political cartoons where in like one frame you know you can just nail it and and you do that over and over again. For oh, thanks. That's what I'm shooting. Yeah. <laughs> this old house is a tumble and down. The walls are gone, but the roof is sound. A landlord's death, you can never be found. It's time to ring some changes. The rest you just stand still I'll ask you to pose with your hand in the till I'll ask you to die when you've written your will It's time to ring some changes 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 You need more money The money's gone down But I'll borrow instead It's time to ring some changes Now the politicians They look so smug They say tell the truth And they give you a shrug They might find the truth Swept down to the rug It's time to ring some changes Time to ring some changes Time to ring some changes Says what can't you ever can? 
Can't you push buttons? Can't you make plans? Time to ring some changes. Well, I'm gonna tell you some mansion down. Get my feet back on the ground. And if for penny and pound for pound, it's time to ring some changes. 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 You've been listening to Music for the New Revolution. I'm Rodney Wittenberg. I'm David Heitler-Clevens. Music for the New Revolution is produced at Melody Vision Recording Studios in Plymouth Meeting, Pennsylvania. Music for the New Revolution is written and produced by David Heitler-Clevens and Rodney Wittenberg. And edited and co-produced by Ben Flax. You can find us at musicforthenewrevolution.com or MFTNR. Like us on Facebook and follow our Spotify playlist. And our podcasts can be found on SoundCloud and iTunes. And you can also be a patron, a supporter of our podcast on Patreon. This is Music for, for the, the New, new Revolution. revolution. For a pop of pill culture, drug companies circling like a vulture. Amaraki babies with the GI Joe father.